In this episode, we're joined by James Tucker, who is the CEO of 27Tech. Now, the mortgage industry has historically been a little bit behind the curve when it comes to the adoption of new technology, but things are changing. And one of the companies that I think are really pushing the industry forward is 27Tech. So today, we're gonna to deep dive into topics around mortgage technology and really explore whether the industry has finally reached a tipping point in adoption. So firstly, James, thanks for joining us today for our first face-to-face -face, uh, recording of the Tech Talks. Thanks, Mark. It's quite exciting to be here in person, I have to say. So before we dive into the main topics of today, do you want to start by giving us a bit of an intro into 27Tech and what you actually do? Uh, so we design and build technology that makes the process of searching, applying for and obtaining a mortgage simpler, faster and more efficient. And we deploy technology into both advisors and lenders themselves. So I'm always interested in you know, what drives founders and the origin stories of companies. Can you give us a bit of a personal intro into your background and how you came to co-found 27Tech? Sure. So I was um, a stockbroker, came out of university, worked in the city, ended up working for a, a small hedge fund and then a, a small venture capital firm. And at the time I was there, the, the guy that was running it was investing in a range of different small businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and he basically said, look, I, I think I've heard some good things about this mortgage space, particularly the B2B side. Sounds a little bit antiquated in terms of the way they do things. Do you want to go and take a look? Um, so I did some research with him. We spoke to some of the people in the industry, uh, Peter Brodnicki at MAB, mm -hmm. uh, and we kind of concluded that there was a lot of antiquated tech in this space, a lot of slightly outdated ways of doing things versus the technology we were seeing in different markets. So we thought, okay, great opportunity, build a new business from scratch, look to solve some of the problems that we mm -hmm. saw advisors and lenders were facing. We work with MAB, uh, Peter's business is a, kind of our cornerstone client to give us mm -hmm. that knowledge in the mortgage space. Um, so whilst I think we had a great background in technology, we didn't necessarily know an awful lot about the mortgage space. So partnering with MAB gave us that knowledge. Mm -hmm. From there, we built our, our product selection engine, our, our source system, and, and we've kind of built out and built out from that point. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, certainly lots of opportunity to innovate in the sector, which we'll come on to uh, in a bit. I guess as someone from outside of the, the sector coming in originally, what most sort of surprised you about technology adoption in the sector when you first started on this journey? I think there are probably two key things that we noticed that made it really interesting. Mm -hmm. Firstly, everyone, and this was back in 2015, 2016 still, everyone was obsessed with offline. Everyone we spoke to said, oh, well, you're only online. That's, you know, that won't work for us. We've got to have an offline solution. Mm -hmm. And for the life of me, we, we couldn't figure out why that was the case. And right. it always felt to us that there would be a natural transition to online over time. Mm -hmm. And actually the benefits of being a provider with a purely online platform is you're able to iterate and deploy new technology a lot faster Whereas if you're an older business with legacy offline tech, it's a lot harder to develop that. So it felt like there was a space for us to, to move faster than potentially the competition. The other piece as well was just the lack of connectivity, the lack of interoperability between systems. It, it was so obvious that there were so many processes that were going on that were very manual and very repeated through, through the advice process. So for us, we felt there was an opportunity to, to find ways to build technology that brought all those systems together. So you actually joined us for episode two of Tech Talks, which was uh, uh, you know, recorded over Zoom just over a year ago. Um, it's been an eventful year, uh, should we say, all round. What are some of the lessons you've learned from the last year and some of the challenges that you and 27Tech have had to overcome? I think the biggest challenge that we and every company has had to overcome is, is not just the, the way of working that's changed in terms of going from kind of being in an office to being at home, but it, it's how you build and maintain a culture that supports all your employees through that. 
you know, we, like everybody else, had a culture in the organization that was very much focused around the office. And we did lots of things in the office that made people feel like they were a part of the team. And suddenly you then go completely remote almost mm -hmm. overnight. And you've got to build a brand new culture from scratch that, that still makes people involved and engaged in the way that they were before, but using completely different means. So we, we did all the things a lot of other companies did, like Zoom quizzes and, and all this great stuff. And we actually introduced a, 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 self, a company intranet called WorkVivo, which we got from a third party. And it's really been fantastic to bring the whole business together digitally in the way that we had through the office before. Now we're faced with a completely new challenge, as everyone else is, which is, well, I'm probably going to end up in a bit of a hybrid state of working from home, working in the office. How do I build a, a new culture again that actually takes into account the fact we've got different people in different locations doing different things? So it's th that challenge of kind of building, maintaining that culture and adjusting it over time mm. as the business continues to grow is something that, that we felt the pain points on. And, I, and I'm sure everybody has from 10 employee organizations up to 10,000. Interesting. We were talking just, just before then around kind of getting back in the office and uh, your approach. Have you, have you you guys formulated a kind of approach on for this summer of you know starting to get people at least partly back in the office yeah I, I think we made a plan probably midway through last year we, we kind of took a view that we thought this was the right time to make a permanent change to the way we were going to work mm -hmm. we'd always wanted to go to flexible working but this really pushed us into going and making a decision of saying right that's we think we can make this work for our business longer term so middle of last year even in the middle of the pandemic we basically said to everybody look our longer term plan is to, to introduce a policy whereby effectively you work in the office for two days a week and you can choose what those two days are. The rest of the time you can work from home or wherever you may wish to work. Now we brought back people back into the office this month for one day a week, just to give them a bit of a taster of what it's like to be back in the office. Because mm. we've, you know, we've had colleagues who haven't been in the office at all, or to a lesser extent, haven't seen many people over the course of the past year. So we wanted to introduce them back slowly, but we'll go to our two days a week policy from, from June and hopefully that will give people the, the work-life balance they want, yeah. but also maintaining still, you know, as we talked about that cultural element, mm. but also the collaboration we want from our teams at the right time. Mm. Yeah, I think we're, we're sort of exploring sort of similar ideas here as well. And it'd be interesting to see as people get more used to socialising again and, and seeing people in real life, just how that hopefully momentum will build a bit more towards, you know, I think we'll always have the hybrid uh, approach now, but particularly when we think about, you know, discovery workshops and those creative activities, the collaboration, I think, you know, face-to-face -face certainly has value there. We, we've been really excited to get everybody back for one day. We can actually yeah. see how positively everybody reacted to that. Yeah. I think the people that were nervous, you know, when, when they'd been in, you know, for a day mm -hmm. or two, they kind of relaxed again and felt a bit like, oh, this this is normal, this is yeah. this is okay, this is safe, and yeah. that, that positive response to it has been really good. That's good to hear. I guess you guys also a bit like us used to hold regular face-to-face -face, uh, drinks events and uh, quite a lot we've come along to all, all good fun how have you found sort of pivoting to you know your networking as a CEO I mean I'll be honest with you Marcus I'm sure it's been for you it's been really difficult mm. you know for me a big part of my job was always going out meeting people yeah. talking to people trying to understand what's going on and I think you know we we've all had to find new ways of doing that mm. I think as a CEO you're constantly assimilating information from the market yeah. and using that information to make the right decisions when we suddenly went to not seeing anybody anymore, all those sources of information from the face-to-face -face contact we used to have kind of disappeared. So you've, you've had to build that up again over the course of the past year through regular phone calls, Zoom calls, trying to get out, even if to go for a walk with somebody in the forest that yes. you'd normally do business with. And, and you know, a little bit like the culture piece, it's, it's building new touch points with external people 
hopefully we'll get back to some of the social stuff and you know, mm. maybe you and I can go for a beer after this and that would be great. Certainly will. And hopefully we can do that some more with other people too. But I don't think it'll ever go back to quite what it was before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it will take time. Well, actually, funny if that's the origin story of this podcast was uh, early on, I had meetings booked for people in my diary and you know, thought, well, why don't I just record them on Zoom and push them out and you know, uh, that, that sort of built momentum in its own way. So it's all around trying new things. Of course, I think one of the biggest challenges for the sector over the past decade has just been getting some of the basics right. You know, particularly around electronic passing of data between different parties. Um, that's starting to change, and we're going to talk about potentially your role uh, and the company's role uh, in pushing that forward next. But why do you think the industry has taken so long to, to really tackle that quite fundamental challenge? I think the intent has always been there. You know, from, from the early days of us coming into the market in 2015 and 16 and talking to people about that, mm. you know, the lenders and the advisors, they, they all knew that that was something they needed. That the challenge they faced was that the underlying systems that they were all using were never designed with that idea of interoperability in mind. You know, that there wasn't an intent when those sort of platforms were built to be able to connect them up to each other. So to try and unpick some of that legacy technology and to find ways using new technology to connect the two together has taken people a long time. Then you've got the challenges of data protection and security and the issues we've seen lenders and advisor firms have as well with the potential loss of, of data that they've seen to, to occur. You know, there's risks in everything that we're doing here. And when you're talking about organizations that are the size and scale of the ones that we're talking about and the volume of data that they process for people that's, that's personal and obviously related to their finances, these are not things that you can, you can do quickly. You have to make sure you do it right. And it's, it's taken more time than I think we probably all hoped we would. But, but finally, we're in a place now where some of that connectivity is in place and starting to be built upon. Yes. And do you think perhaps one reason could have been that um, if you think about who was doing the re-king, it was the broker. Uh, and you know, arguably from a lender having to invest in some potentially big re-platforms, uh, re-platforming internally, you know, to justify that return on investment when you've got the broker already re-king the data, do you think potentially that was a bit of a hard sell initially? Yeah, I, I think it was. I think when we first started talking to lenders about this in kind of 2016, 2017, a lot of the responses we got were, well, we're going to get that business anyway, so I'm not quite sure why I'd want to invest in making it especially easier. But, but the reality is with the competitive market that they're all in now, you know, the cost of funds, the rates that they're able to charge, the margins that are being squeezed, lenders have got to find ways to differentiate their proposition. And one of the easiest ways for them to do that potentially is to make it easier for brokers to do business with them. Mm. And if they can make it as seamless as possible for a broker to get the answer that he wants for his client, he or she wants for his client, as quickly as possible, then I think that's a great differentiator for a lender to have as part of their overall proposition. So speaking of events, uh, I remember coming to your uh, um, event at the top of the Gherkin, I think it was around two years ago, launching Apply, uh, and you had quite an exciting list of uh, lenders and target of how many are going to get launched on the platform within the first year or so. Um, it's been really exciting, I think particularly over the last six months, to see announcement after announcement and, and more and more lenders plugging in. Would it be fair to say that it's taken a little bit longer to get to this point than you initially expected? It, it would, definitely. I, I think when we did that event and when we put the, the list of names up with the lenders and the dates, which, which you know, they were all happy with, with us doing, I think there was a realisation amongst all of us even then that there was a good chance that things were going to take a lot longer than that. 
But what we did by doing that event was really put a marker in the sand, not, not just for us, but also I think for the wider industry to say, look, there's, there's a commitment here from, from our business and from all of these lenders that these things are gonna happen. This is the timeline in which we want them to happen. But even if that timeline falls away, that, that commitment is absolutely there. So everybody needs to start thinking about the reality of that occurring, whatever timeline that is, and what the impact of that is on their business. Mm. I don't think we, or to some extent, the lenders would be where we are on connectivity if we hadn't all been in a position where we did say, right, look, we are committing that we're doing this, and these are the timelines we're working to. Mm. So how many of the kind of top 15 lenders are now plugged into the platform? Uh, so I think we've got 11 lenders live at the moment, and we've got projects in flight with the vast majority of, of the rest of the top okay. 15. So our target by the end of the year is probably 80% coverage of that top 15, top 20 lenders. Uh, I think we'll probably get there based on where we are at the moment with, you know, Halifax, Virgin, Nationwide, Barclays, TSB Accord and Skipton Live and, and projects in flight with the rest. So that momentum that you know, we really wanted a couple of years ago, certainly in the last six months, has really started to come to the fore. That's good to hear. I mean, is there any lessons from those projects from that you've already completed or advice you'd give to, to lenders that are yet to embark on that journey? God, yeah. Um, you know, all of, these pro all of these projects are challenging. You know, there's no question because, like we said earlier, you know, you're dealing with legacy technology in a lot of cases that isn't designed to do some of the things that, that we're looking for it ultimately do in, in terms of opening up API connectivity for, for the whole journey. I think what we've learned with lenders through the, the processes and projects that we've been on is look, well, whilst the end state may be over here and that's where we want to get to and that's fantastic, you know, let, let's think about where we can get to on, on day one mm. and how that journey transpires and moves over time. So if, if day one is, is you can get us a, a decision in principle API into our platform and then the broker continues the journey in your system, well, look, that's fantastic. That, mm. That's better than where we are. So let's take that. Let's let's see what the adoption levels are, and let's learn from that and evolve the journey over time. Mm. And what's the uptake been like from brokers? Because I guess there probably had to be a, you know, a certain critical mass of lenders that were on the platform uh, uh, to make it worthwhile. How's that going? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I, I think for us, particularly the last three or four months, have been absolutely critical in us seeing and finally you know, really touching and feeling the adoption that we thought would be there. Okay. So funnily enough, last week we had our first ever day of over 100 submissions via apply in a single day. So that, that adoption is, is really starting to gain momentum now. And we're seeing that with the partners that we've got integrated on the advisor side mm -hmm. and also the lender side as well. It's never as fast as you want. Uh, and we're gonna start publishing some stats soon, which okay. show to the market what that adoption level is. But I think over time, as you say, Mark, you know, when we add more lenders, we add more advisors onto it as well, you can see that momentum building on the adoption side too. So last year, 27Tech appointed Doc9 to run the user experience design uh, for your new Capture customer portal. And this, I think, was right in the first lockdown. You initially appointed us and it was all run remotely, uh, remote workshops, remote usability testing with users. First of all, what was that experience like working remotely with an agency? I have to say, obviously, we, we knew you and the team from, from previously. So you know, for us, because we already had that working relationship to do that project remotely, there wasn't actually an awful lot of difference versus having to come up here and, and spend a bit of time with you. You know, we, we're all used to Zoom and you know, different ways you can communicate with each other remotely. So actually, in, in that respect, it, it was fantastic and there was no issues at all. And in some ways, it was nice not to have to come into London every other week to come and spend four or five hours with you guys to, to be able to do that from home and yeah. you know, in, in your office. It, it was great. Good. And so for those that aren't familiar with the Capture portal and what it does, you know, what, was the, what was the driving force behind that project? Uh, so it was very obvious to us last year that 
advisors were going to struggle to meet clients in person in the way that they had done previously. So what we were keen to do is to give them effectively a digital onboarding solution mm -hmm. such that they could send a link out to their client, the client could securely log in, enter the data the advisor needed in order to help them process their, their application and also upload any documentation that they needed. So that's essentially what, what Capture does. Now, for us, it was the first time that we'd ever developed a solution that was going to be used by customers themselves. We'd previously only really developed technology for, for advisors and for lenders. So it was really important that when we built that platform, we worked with an organization who really understood the kind of UX you need in order for a customer to actually be using that system. And hence why we chose to work with Doc9. So the product actually went to live in the market in October. Um, what's the feedback and uptake been like from users? Uh, it's been great. We've got a lot of firms using the system now, which has been excellent. And actually, uh, in the last month, we've dedicated significant development resource to building out that product further. Okay. So we're going to integrate a range of different services into it, such as product selection, criteria and affordability oh, wow, searching okay. as well. And it seems to have worked in terms of giving the customers a little bit more comfort around their expectations of what that sort of a journey would look like, and also just make them feel more comfortable around the sharing of that data. So sometimes it, it can seem that barely a week goes by without a new announcement from 27 Tech uh, or press release around a new integration. Um, I think it was about a year ago uh, you announced integrating with mortgage broker tools. Um, one year down the track, how's that partnership gone? Uh, it's gone really well. So I, I think for us, you know, we see ourselves as a business that very much sits in the middle of the, the process, uh, as I said at the start, from kind of searching to applying. And ultimately, whilst our users will, will clearly choose to use our technology, it's not up to us to dictate what other third parties they might want to use as part of that. So a core part of our strategy is, okay, how do we integrate other third parties into our platform such that the broker can pick and choose which parties they want to work with and then switch those solutions on and have them accessible via our system. And Mortgage Broker Tools is an example of that, which we've used for affordability, but we've also done an integration with Experian as well. Mm -hmm. On the property details and valuation side, you know, we've done an integration with Wenfresh, which okay. we've announced recently, but we'll also be working with people like uh, HomeTrack and Rightmove as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's about giving our users choice as to the different third parties that they might want to use, hence, hence why there's so many announcements <laughs> about different third parties we're working with. So yeah, you mentioned Wenfresh. I saw that. It was only a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? Um, what's the thinking behind that integration? So as a part of the, the product selection and lender selection journey, the advisor does a lot of work to take into account client circumstances, but they also have to take into account the property itself and all the variables that come with that property, which will determine the extent to which a lender may wish to lend on it, such as whether it's on the sixth floor above a fish and chip shop and what the construction material is, et cetera, et cetera. So what we've done with Wemfresh is access a load of data that they hold and that actually they provide to a lot of lenders insurance companies on property details. So an advisor can click a button after they've entered the address of a property and pull down all of the information that Wenfresh hold on that property that's relevant for the product selection process. That means when the advisor goes through to determining what the right lender is, they know that they've got the right information available to them to say, okay, well, actually I know that this lender won't lend on that property for this reason, but this lender will. Yeah. We've coupled that then with a banded valuation from Wenfresh. And what that then gives the advisor is the ability to see and gauge whether the valuation of the property that the client has given them is based upon the same metrics and, and broadly speaking similar to what an independent third party is likely to value that property at. Mm -hmm. And what we've then done is combine that to the point of being able to say, okay, if, if the valuation that your client has given you for the property is broadly within the band, mm -hmm. the chances are if that lender is using an AVM, yeah. you'll probably pass through and be able to access that AVM and it will be quite quick. Cool. If your client's given you a valuation that isn't sat within that band, mm -hmm. 
there's a risk that this might go to a physical survey because it seems to fall a little bit outside of the expectations that we think in terms of what the value should be. So it's just trying to help advisors pick the right path and understand then what the repercussions of that decision are in terms of speed to decision. So it seems like the strategy, I mean, there was a lot of talk a few years ago, you know, around robo-advice and a lot of direct-to-consumer offerings that launched. It seems like the big part of your strategy is around kind of arming the broker with a, a tool set to make their life you know, a lot easier, more efficient. Would that be fair to say in terms of the vision for the future of the broker? Completely, yeah. I, I make no bones about the fact that personally I'm a big believer in advice. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, the best client outcomes come from a customer going through the process of advice and determining with their advisor what the right thing for them to do is. Mm -hmm. So for our business, our focus has always been on how do we build technology that makes the process of advice easier, but also how do we help lenders and advisors drive down the cost of advice such that they've got the ability to offer it to more customers. Mm -hmm. And that to me seems far more preferable than you know, developing robo-advice solutions or lenders investing in going direct to customer themselves. Because if we really focus and say, what is the right thing for the customer, it should be to go through an advice process. Mm. But if you think about the, you know, the amount of time uh, brokers can spend on admin tasks and reeking data, um, this type of technology would really free them up if it takes to its logical conclusion to kind of focus on you know, more time giving advice versus reeking of uh, uh, data. Absolutely, where, where an advisor adds value is in the half an hour that he or she gets to talk to that customer and really understand their circumstances and determine whether or not a two-year rate is right, a five-year rate is right, you know, what the right criteria might be for that person. That, that's the nuance in product selection, which can't be done by a pure rules-driven engine. And I think that's where they add the value. Sounds good. So you know, what's on the horizon for James and 27 Tech for the year ahead? Uh, so you know, at, at the start of 2020, we probably had 40 people in our business. At the end of this year, we'll have about 80. Mm -hmm. So we're really continuing to make a very significant investment in our platform. And we've talked about the third parties that we're working with. And obviously, we'll be looking to extend that. We've talked a bit about capture and looking to build that product out further. We're also doing a lot of work behind the scenes with lenders in, in understanding how they process applications when they get them mm -hmm. and whether there are ways that we can bring some of that processing up to the front end of the process to, to ultimately make that, that ultimate decision as to whether or not the customer will be accepted and the point of completion of that application faster for everyone. So there's, there's a big investment going on from our business at all different points in the value chain. And I think there's a lot of new technology that we're going to be deploying in the market over the course of the next 12, 24 months. Sounds exciting. So if we were to continue our, our new tradition of recording an episode once a year, uh, we were to get together in 12 months time and, and look back at the last year, what do you think would have changed in terms of adoption of technology in the mortgage sector? Well, I, I think the key word there is adoption. Um, and I think what will change is that there will have been some adoption. You know, we're, There's a lot of businesses, ourselves including, that have been building some great technology for this space over the course of the past 24 months. I think adoption levels of some of that technology is, is still slow. And, and part of that is because advisors have been so busy. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of that might slow down and they might have time to step back and go, okay, how, how do I think about if I become this busy again in future, how I can do that in a more efficient way. So, so for me, you know, that, that point around adoption will become something that you know, we'll, we'll see change across things like application submission, uh, use of criteria sourcing, affordability sourcing, but also other areas, you know, client onboarding, digital identification, all, all these different component pieces that are part of the mortgage journey, but are still used sporadically by advisors. I, I think they'll all become mainstream mm -hmm. and you'll see a change in the way that advisors are ultimately working. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Well, we're going to continue a time-honoured uh, mortgage industry tradition of catching up uh, over a pint uh, in a pub now. So just to wrap up, really appreciate your time today, James. Thanks for coming in. And uh, thanks to our audience for joining us today.